welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning. I'm Becky Jones, and I'm an elder here at CPC. And for the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about our life in eternity. And so this morning, what we're going to look at is what awaits us as we enter into our heavenly home. What will we be greeted with when we enter into our heavenly home? As I was preparing this sermon, an event from my childhood came to mind. I had a younger sister, and I think I like to torment her sometimes. So uh, we were walking home after playing at a friend's house, and I was upset with her about something. I don't remember what it was. But at any rate, I decided to tell her a lie. I told her that my mom was really mad at her, and that when she got home, she was in big trouble. Well, I could see the effect my words had upon her. You know, immediately she looked very afraid and kind of dreadful of, you know, going home. And then the closer we got to our house, uh, the slower her step got. And the more I could see this uh, uh, anticipation in her of facing my mother, who was, she felt, going to be very angry with her. Many of us as believers have the same problem as my sister. We walk toward our heavenly home with heavy hearts because we falsely believe that shame and judgment awaits us when we get there. Shortly after I became a believer in Jesus, and I mean maybe probably within the first year, Uh, I heard a lecture by a very famous Bible teacher, and in this lecture, she painted this picture of heaven being this large movie screen where your whole life was going to be played back for all of heaven to see. Um, She said we would see all the missed opportunities that we had to share God's love with people, that we would see all of our sinful actions and our ungodly thoughts and even our ungodly motives would be revealed. We would feel remorse. We would wish we had lived differently. We would feel ashamed. And to top it all off, all of heaven was going to see this. Well, I was horrified, to say the least. This was not heaven to me. This was hell. And it certainly didn't make me look forward to going home to be with my Heavenly Father. Now, you may not have such an extreme view of heaven as my friend the Bible teacher did. But I imagine that you, like me, struggle with the fear of God's assessment of your life as a believer. Deep down, you and I know that we haven't loved God or our neighbor as we should. We grapple daily with our own personal sin. We know our inclination toward the world, toward worldly things. We know our addictions, our pride, our self-righteousness, our jealousies. 
We may hide these things from other people, but we live daily with our own wretchedness, don't we? And because of this, we fear how this will be addressed when we face our Heavenly Father. Well, hopefully, in the short time that we have together this morning, we will lay these misconceptions to rest. We're going to look at an amazing story that Jesus tells about a wretched son's entry into his father's house. And through this narrative, we will get a glimpse of what awaits us when we enter into our Heavenly Father's house. The story's found in Luke 15. Tom read it for you. There are many incredible things in this story that we could look at, but this morning what we're going to do is just focus on one small part of it. We're going to look at the wretched younger son and his gracious, loving father. The story is, father had two sons. The older son, it tells us, lived his life focused on works. He worked all the time in his father's estate, and he worked for what he felt would be the rewards that his father would owe him someday. Now, we could do a sermon on that right there. <laughs> but we won't, because this morning we're going to look at the other son, which was the younger son. And he spent his whole life just living for himself. Just living for worldly pleasures. He did nothing for his father. Jesus takes this story of the, just the younger son and he divides it into two parts. The first part is about the depravity of the younger son. And the second part focuses on the forgiving grace of his father. So let's look at this depraved son. Jesus paints a very low picture of this son. As far as we know, he does no work on his father's estate. He just sits around waiting for the day that his father will die so he can get his inheritance and leave. And finally, the day comes when he can wait no longer. He gets very impatient, and so he goes to his father and says, uh, I want my share of the inheritance now. And so he demands that the father give him his inheritance early. So he can live home, leave home and live entirely for his own good pleasure. Asking for his inheritance in that culture was unheard of. It's probably unheard of in you know most of the world. It would be unheard of, but especially in that culture, it was it was shocking, because basically what he is saying to his father is, "I wish you were dead, so I can get your money and leave." But I can't wait any longer for you to die, so I want it now, so I can get out of here. Such actions would have brought great shame upon the father and upon the family name. And then Jesus goes on to say that this despicable son takes his inheritance and leaves his father's estate and then squanders his father's money on just wild living just partying all the time. After 
months and maybe years, we don't know because Jesus doesn't tell us, but after a passage of time, it says, all the money's gone. He's wasted it all, and it's gone, and now he's destitute. He's penniless, homeless, eating other people's garbage. Finally, at his lowest point, he comes to his senses and decides to return home. And so he heads home, mostly probably with a lot of fear and trepidation because, you know, he didn't know how he was going to be received when he got there. He comes home with nothing to offer his father. He's squandered everything, nothing to show for his father's hard-earned money, no good works, no life of righteousness. He arrives home dressed in the rags of a wasted life. At this point, the story takes an unexpected turn because it goes from the darkness that we see in this son's life to the light of the glory of his father's great love for him. Jesus' description of the homecoming of this worthless, despicable son must have made his audience gasp. They would have been shocked at what Jesus said because they would have expected that the son got what he deserved. You know, that he would have been put to shame before the whole community and then cast out of his father's kingdom forever. But that's not the picture that Jesus gave. Contrary to their expectation, the son's father was not waiting to sit in judgment of his sinful son. He was waiting to joyously welcome him home. This is the point that Jesus wanted his audience to get, to see. And this is the point that he wants us to see. And that is that He's giving us just this little glimpse of the amazing grace and love that will greet us when we enter into our Father's home. That's what he wants us to see. How does Jesus describe Father's love? Well, first he describes a father who daily watches for the homecoming of his son. Here's a father whose heart just yearns to be with his son again. All this father wants is to hold his son in his arms. Next, we see a father who's so overjoyed at his son's return that he runs to close the gap between them. Think of the son's reluctance to face his father. Maybe like some of us have when we think about entering into heaven. Head down, you know, feet dragging, weighed down with his sin, dreading his father's judgment. Imagine his surprise when he sees his father running toward him with open arms and joy on his face and the shock and the relief that he must have felt when he was embraced by his father and then just kissed all over his face. 
years ago, uh, I had a friend, her name was Anne, and Anne was dying of cancer. And so I went to the hospital to be with her in her final hours. And I was there, and she was just emaciated, you know, she had no hair, um, just, you know, wasted person. And um, I read some scriptures to her, and then I took her hand and held her hand to pray for her. And as I was praying for Anne, the Lord showed Anne and myself the same picture of what she was going to. And what I saw was, here was Anne, fully restored, in a fully restored body, beautiful, long hair, dressed in white, and she's running across a green field, and coming toward her out of this beautiful city of light is Jesus Christ with his arms open like this, running toward Anne with joy in his face to just welcome her into her eternal home. And just a few hours later, that's exactly where Anne went. She ran into the arms of Jesus Christ. We have a father waiting to hold us in his arms. What's the son's response to the father's love, to this love? Well, he can hardly believe it. You can almost see him like push his father away and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You don't know what a mess I've made of my life. You don't know I've squandered everything that you gave me. I'm not worthy of being called your son. You have every right to give me the lowest place in your kingdom. Give me the lowest place in your kingdom. If I can just stay, I'll take it. If I can just stay here with you, I'll be your servant. What does the father respond back to the son at these words? He ignores his son's self-incrimination. Doesn't that amaze you? He says nothing to him. Like, yeah, you blew it. <laughs> You're a great sinner, but I forgive you. He didn't even say that to him. He doesn't even mention one sin that his son has committed. The father's response to his son's words indicate that he doesn't see his son as anything but his beloved child. Well, the story then goes from amazing to incredible because the father not only makes no mention of his son's sins, but he honors and exalts his son to the highest place in his kingdom. The son is immediately clothed with the best robe in the house. Do you know whose robe that would be? The father's own robe he puts on the son. He puts a signet ring on his finger, meaning that he's giving this son the authority over all of his kingdom, over his whole estate and shoes on his feet. Servants went barefoot. Only the sons wore shoes. And then to top it all off, the father proclaims to everyone, look, this is my son. This is my beloved son. Don't, don't those words just touch your heart? I mean, the love that this father had to have had for his son. And can you imagine the joy and the relief 
and the humility that the son must have felt at those words? Well, it gets better. There's even more. It's like, like God's grace that Jesus is showing us in this story just gets bigger. It just expands out. Because this gracious father not only runs to his son, embraces him, kisses him on his face, clothes him in royal attire, gives him authority over his kingdom, declares him his beloved son, but he throws a lavish party to celebrate his homecoming. What a joyous picture Jesus gives us here of heaven. Think about it. Heaven, a solemn, quiet, religious, ethereal place, boring? No way. That's not what Jesus says. He says heaven is a place of celebration. In fact, in Luke 15, Jesus tells three stories, and in all three stories, he tells us the same thing. He says, every time a sinner repents, every time a child of God turns his face toward God, toward his Father, God throws a party in heaven. Every time. So do you know what that means? Heaven is one big, noisy celebration all the time. That's what's going on there. It's a place of joyous celebration, delicious food, the best wine, joyful music and dancing. In fact, it was so loud in the story, you know, we probably didn't read this part, but the, the older son's out in the field and he hears the noise. That's how loud the celebration is. Heaven's a place where God's beloved children gather to celebrate the Lord and one another. I had another friend who had cancer. His name was Terry. And when I heard that Terry had terminal cancer, I went to his house to pray for him. And as I went to pray for Terry, Terry said to me, you can pray for my healing if you want, but I'm not going to be healed. God has shown me. And I said, really? What did he show you? And he said, well, God showed, and I don't know whether it was a dream or a vision that Terry had, but Terry said what he saw was he saw himself flying over the top of a great expanse, and he could see out in the distance this shoreline. It was like a beach. And he saw all these people coming down to the beach, and they were yelling and shouting, and he could tell they were excited about something. And they had even banners that they were carrying. And as he got closer, he recognized the faces of people that he had known on earth, that he had loved, that had gone on to be with the Lord. And they were coming down to this beach, and they were yelling, Terry's coming! Here he comes! Yay, Terry! And they were celebrating his homecoming. And the banners, read on the banners, it said, Welcome home, Terry. That's what waits for us. Heaven, a place where we are going to be celebrated by our Heavenly Father. I want you to notice what Jesus' story does not contain. Contrary to what many of us think about heaven, the Son's homecoming had no negative aspects to it. 
Jesus gives no indication of a life review of judgment for his sins or bad works, which are the same thing. No levels of status in heaven according to how one had lived their life. Of course, if it had been that, that son would have been at the lowest, wouldn't he, place. But instead, we see a son who has met with the amazing grace and love of his father and given the highest position on his estate. I want to conclude with a few of, there's many passages of scripture that we could look at. I, I, you know, I had a hard time just narrowing it down so that we weren't here all morning. But I want to give you a few that just reinforce the message that Jesus gives us in this story. And you could jot these down even. Just, you know, ever if you ever start doubting about what awaits you in heaven, go to these scriptures and look at them. The first thing uh, that we're going to look at, and I, and I hope these will ease some of your concerns that you have, maybe. Um, the first one, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. I call this the great exchange, you know. Jesus takes our sin and we get his righteousness. Amazing deal, isn't it? Yeah, amazing. Our sinful life was imputed to Jesus Christ. His righteousness has been imputed to us. It's been put on the account of our life. That's what the word imputed means. It's been put there. When God takes an inventory of your life, what is he going to see the life of Jesus Christ. That's what's been given to you. It's a great gift that God gives us. There won't be one sin, one bad work, one bad thought listed there. When you enter heaven, you will enter as God's righteous child, just as righteous as his son Jesus Christ. Is that incredible or what? Jude 24 to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault, with great joy. How much clearer can the Lord say it? You need have no dread of appearing before your heavenly Father. Because Jesus is going to present you as his beautiful, glorious, sinless, righteous child. And he's going to do this with great joy, it says. He's going to say, look. Look at her. Look at him. My beautiful child. You are the prize that Jesus won at his death and resurrection. You're the joy of his life. You're the great gift that the Father gave to him through his work on the cross. And your presentation at the throne of God will be a joyous celebration. Secondly, will you face any kind of judgment when you get there? John 5, to 24, Jesus is speaking. The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not come in to judgment. Now this is Jesus speaking. The judgment of all mankind has been delegated to Jesus by the Father. 
and he makes an emphatic statement here. He clearly assures us that if we have believed that God sent him, Jesus Christ, to the earth to pay for our sins, that we have eternal life, and we will never, ever come into judgment. This is the judge speaking. Because of Jesus, you've already been judged. Righteous. That's how you will be judged when you go into heaven. That's how you're judged now by God. Thirdly, will there be a life review, the big movie screen in heaven? Is that going to happen? 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 18. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old life is gone. The new life has come. And all of this is a gift of God who brought us back to himself through Christ. Colossians 3, 3 to 4. For you died and your real life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The only life that you and I have as a believer is the life of Jesus Christ. That's the life you have. That's it. Your old life is gone. It doesn't exist in the account, in the records of heaven, it no longer exists. If there is a life review in heaven, guess whose life is going to be reviewed? Jesus Christ. Because he is my life. That's what will be reviewed. And that life, this verse tells us, is hidden. It's hidden. I can't see it. I mean, when you look at me, you don't say, wow, she just looks like Jesus. <laughs> I don't see that in you. But I'm telling you what, when Jesus appears, he's going to just take off the cover of these bodies and out like a butterfly comes out of a cocoon is going to come the glorious, righteous child of God. That's how you're going to appear when Jesus appears in glory. You will be unveiled at that time as his child. Finally, last question we'll think about here. Will we feel ashamed that we didn't do more for Jesus, that we didn't live better lives? Romans 9.33 says, the one who trusts in him, in Jesus, will never be put to shame. Never. Now, God repeats this at least eight times. Do you know that? Eight times in the Bible, he repeats, you will never be put to shame. There's the scriptures if you want to jot them down. Why do we repeat something over and over to someone? Say to, like, your children. Why do you do that? You want them to know that you mean what you say. You're just reinforcing your, your words over and over as you repeat whatever it is that you want them to get. That's what God's doing here. He wants his children to get this. So he keeps saying it. You will never be put to shame. You will never experience shame when you stand before your father. No, never, he says, ever will there be shame on your face. 
Look at those scriptures. He wants us to get it. He wants us to believe him. The final passage I want to look at is 1 John 4, 16 to 19. This is kind of a long passage, but I want you to notice how many times it talks about God's love and what it's really saying here. It starts out saying, we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. So that's the first thing right there. It's not just knowing that God loves you. Not just me saying to you this morning, God loves you. It's believing it. It's believing that what God says is true. And then it goes on, it says, God is love. And all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. By this, love is made perfect in us so that we can face him with confidence and not be afraid on the day of judgment. Because as Jesus is, so are we in this world. That's a pretty amazing statement. As Jesus is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. It's what you're afraid of. You're going to be punished. The one who fears has not understood the perfect love that God has for him. So let's go back to the beginning of my account with my sister, <laughs> my lying to my sister. If she had clearly understood how much her mom loved her, if she had been confident that she had not done anything wrong, that she was innocent, if she knew that her mother was waiting with open arms and maybe even warm cookies, she would have called me the liar that I was. And she would have run joyfully toward home. Jesus' story presents us with two extremes. A son who is extremely sinful. That's you. That's me. And a father who is extremely gracious and forgiving. That's our heavenly father. His message to us through this narrative is no matter how great your sin, no matter how much you have squandered God's blessings, no matter how much pig's food you've eaten, your Heavenly Father's love and grace covers it all. It overrides it all. God wants you to rest in the assurance that he is waiting to take you in his arms and to show you how much he has always loved you. He wants you to know that the first words that you will hear as you approach your father's house will be, Welcome home, my child. I've been waiting for you to join the party. That's what waits for us when we leave this life and enter into the presence of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray.
Father, you are more gracious and more loving than we can ever grasp in this life. We pray that we may not only know about your love, but that you would send faith into our hearts to believe that you truly do love us. Completely and unconditionally. We pray that we may walk toward our heavenly home with great joy, knowing that a love greater than we can imagine awaits us. We thank you, Father, for this beautiful story that Jesus gives to us here of your amazing grace. And Father, we just pray that if there's anyone listening to this or sitting here that has never embraced your grace, that this would be the moment they would do that. Your Father's just waiting to take you into his arms and to receive you as his child. Just run to him, and he will take away all of your sin and give you his righteousness. Father, we just pray these things and praise you and thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.